0: A little bit of a revision from last week. You might remember, if you were here, we introduced the notion of covenant as a, a framework for redemptive history. If you read through the scriptures, you can see these number of covenants taking place, and it gives us a scaffold or a framework uh, for scripture, how God reveals himself through redemptive history. Um, but it's more than just a framework or a scaffold. Um, It's actually to do with the way God reveals himself and relates to us as his people, to humanity. Uh, God's covenants are not contracts. They are fundamentally relationships built on the promises of God. Yes, there are obligations involved, but primarily with a commitment to be responsible for, that's God's commitment to be responsible for us and us to be subject to him. And that's emphasised in the great covenant anthem, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Which is really God's intent and heart's desire all the way through history, isn't it? That's how we read that at the end in Revelation. That's the goal. We will dwell with God and he will dwell with us. Uh, We also saw last week how there was already, before scripture was uh, written in any form, um, there were already treaties taking place in the ancient Near East, the suzerain vassal Treaties. um, And they included a particular formula And also um, covenant ceremonies, which match what we have here in Scripture, particularly as we're going to see Abraham next week. We'll see how that matched uh, more and more. We listed the biblical covenants, God's covenant with creation, we looked at last week, Um, then his covenant with Noah, that's this week, then with Abraham, Moses and David and the new covenant. And we saw briefly last week how God, there's enough support and evidence and references in Scripture to say there was some sort of covenant taking place in creation and a covenant with Adam. Um, We looked into that. And most important of all to understand that God is a God of covenant. That is, he speaks his word to his people. He makes promises and he's faithful to his promises and to his relationship with us. And this morning I trust we're actually going to see how vital that is for all of us, for all humanity, that God himself has committed himself to his cause and to us despite our sin and in one sense even because of our sin. Because if God is not faithful to us, then we are lost because we are not faithful to him. And he will bring us to the goal he had intended for us from the beginning. And so this morning, as I said, we're going to consider God's covenant with Noah and we've already heard some sections from Genesis 6 and 8 to give us some some context for that. Uh, And as I said last week, and we saw there is enough evidence in the Genesis account to suggest that God had a covenant already in place um, before uh, Noah and the flood. And there's a good chance, actually, that God's covenant with Noah here is in fact a reiteration or a renewal of a covenant already in place. The Hebrew scholars are distinguish between some of the words here. In Genesis six eighteen, when God says, I will establish my covenant with you, the Hebrew words there, Hequimberit, are used, sometimes translated here as establish, but they can also mean to fulfil or to confirm a covenant. That is, there's already something there and God is simply repeating it and saying, Remember what I said back then? I'm putting my stamp on it again here to remind you of it. And he's not. the word here is not the cutting of a covenant, which we read in Genesis 15 when he makes a covenant with Abraham, a different covenant. Um, so there's this reiteration of what's already in place. And so it can be argued that this covenant with Noah, with this covenant, God is actually perpetuating or reinforcing a covenant that's already in place. But there's definitely been some significant events happening between creation and this covenant, hasn't there? Like God has regretted that he made us. The corruption and sin of humanity has got to a point where God says, I need to blot them all out and start again. You ever got to that when you've been cooking something or kids with Play-Doh or potting something on the clay? You just, I've got to start afresh. Things are that bad, I just can't make anything out of this good. And yet he doesn't start completely afresh, does he? Because he's still got Noah and his family and he's still taking the animals that he created in the first place. And, as we read in um, chapter six and then chapter nine, there's a sign of this covenant, the rainbow, and we 're going to look at that a little bit further as we go. I don 't know if you've heard, but in, the, uh, in these chapters, Genesis six to nine, um, the scholars also have looked at it, and it 's actually quite a strong as some people find these what they call chiasms in the scriptures just about anywhere they look. And a chiasm is like this step-like structure from the outside to the, in, from the two external. so Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, and you work your way into the middle of it um, and you find a key point or a, a key theme in the middle. Um, but Genesis 6 to 9 actually fits that really well. And you know what the middle verse is and the key point? It's Genesis 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. I'm not going to go through the whole chistic structure with you. But one of the central aspects of this whole story is that phrase, God remembered Noah. And that's covenant language. It's not just, oh, that's right, Noah's floating out there on the ark, isn't he? i better go see how he's doing. It's not that. When God remembers, God acts. And that word remember is his action and it's often to do with redemptive action. It's a covenant word. God's not forgetful. Okay. When God remembers, God acts and it's usually an act of redemption and life. For example, in Genesis 19, God remembers Abraham and rescues Lot. In Genesis 30, God remembers Rachel and opens her womb. In Exodus 2, God remembers Israel's groaning, the Hebrews groaning in Egypt and remembers his covenant with Abraham and rescues them. In 1 Samuel 1 you'll know the story of Hannah crying there and the priest thinks she's drunk. But in her prayer God remembers Hannah and opens her womb and Samuel is born. And so when God remembers, God acts redemptively bringing life where there is no life. And so when God remembers Noah here, that's what's taking place. And it's at that point that the wind blows and the rain stops and things start drying up. And there's almost a renewal of creation, isn't there? Everything's been wiped out. And it's like this is the restart button. You know when you have to restart your computer and you get that frozen and you've got to start? It's a bit like that. God remembered Noah. Now one thing if not anything else which should make us stop and think um, and I think like all good theology all good Bible study should actually lead to doxology should lead to praise, shouldn't it? Giving thanks to God for his loving kindness. Because as we read back in chapter 6 what's the context of all of this? This covenant remembering and redemptive action of God? It's actually the sin and evil of the human heart. Only evil all the time, continually. Every thought and intention of our heart. Yes, there's this judgment on the earth and on humanity, but it's in the midst of that sin and evil that God makes this covenant. They had filled the earth with evil, with corruption. What had God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth with? Something of the garden. (laughs) Not just lots of little Adams and Eves running around. But take my blessing and my provision and our communion that we share together, man and woman and with God, take that and fill the earth with that. But instead, they have filled the earth with corruption. And God says, no, no, that's not what I intended. And I'm still going to bring creation to its goal. And for that to happen, a flood needs to take place. But it's important to note... I don't know whether you've picked this up in the past. If you go to the end of chapter 8, at the end of the flood, the heart of humanity has not changed. The flood did not transform the evil, sinful human heart. Verse 20 of chapter 8, let me read it again. They've just been released from the ark. God has said, go out from the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's not was, it is. Sins entered the world, we are now a fallen humanity, depressed, depravity you know the doctrine of the depravity of man that is we are sinful and we ourselves cannot get ourselves out of our predicament and that's still the case even after the flood yes there's been warning there's been judgment and it should increase the fear of god in man's heart in that sense but it hasn't changed the evil in our heart the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth God swears to uphold creation and sustain its natural rhythms and seasons. Seed time, harvest time, cold and heat, summer, winter, day, night, they shall not cease despite the ongoing depravity of humanity. So God's making this promise into an evil world. As I said, the flood did not transform the heart of man but that does not stop the Lord making his covenant promise here. In fact, it's into that evil intention that God binds himself to us in covenant, promise and mercy. I will never again destroy the earth in this way, he's saying, no matter how bad it gets. You see, God doesn't wait, does he, for us to get our act together before making promises to us, before making commitments to us the same today isn't it god doesn't promise for us to meet him halfway or to get out he comes to us in our sin and the way it's written here in verse 21 of chapter 8 it's almost as though the lord himself has come to realize or at least he's revealing what he already knows that his judgment that is wrath or the cursing of the ground will not change the heart of man I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil all the time. It's like I could curse the ground as many times as I want, it's never going to change the heart of man. If we are to fulfil God's intended creational purpose for us and God is determined to bring that about, even now with a sin-filled and sinful humanity, Something else needs to happen, something other than the flood, something more than God's judgment and covenant curses. Not that those things have no place, not that God will give up on disciplining his people, his children, blessing and cursing, he will continue. But something different needs to come to us if we are to be restored and sin and evil to be removed from humanity. And that's something I believe comes to us through God's covenant love and mercy. Seen all the way through scripture and ultimately we know in Christ. He became sin for us. He removed, taken away the sin of the world. The flood didn't do that. Only the Lamb of God does that. Or as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans 2, it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance, not the flood not his judgment, but his loving kindness Romans 5, hopefully after the last four years with me we know some of these verses, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners Christ died for us while we are still sinners, God makes this covenant with Noah Romans 8, where God did what the law could not do by sending his own son to condemn sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who now walk by the Spirit. Or outside of Romans in Hebrews nine, the gifts and sacrifices offered, here's Noah, melding an altar, making offerings to God, but the gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. But the blood of Christ can, and it has. Now I am jumping ahead of myself there but I just want us to see that God is making this covenant here with Noah in chapter 9 and he's mentioned it a little bit beforehand knowing full well that the heart of man is only evil all the time. It's not simply that God makes his covenant with Noah despite the remaining sin and evil in their hearts. It's as though God's making his covenant here which keeps us and sustains us through the entire valley of history. You know the psalm, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I actually wonder if that's all our life. Yes, we have some highs and lows in it. But through all of history, God is with us and he comforts us, His rod and his staff. He is with us and he takes us through that dark valley, through his covenant word and promise, his faithfulness to us. Until the time of his choosing when he will give us a new heart. When his light shines into our heart. And so the covenants, starting right from the beginning all the way through, show us that God himself is determined and just how determined he is to keep us and to bring us to his goal, the goal of glory, that we would dwell with him and he with us in glorious, unadulterated communion. And as we'll see, there's numerous times through these studies and the covenants, we might violate, we might breach or break the terms of God's covenant, but God never does. He's faithful all the way. He cannot break his covenant with us. If you or I have an agreement, sadly it happens in marriage, it happens in relationship, it happens in workplaces, we might in some circumstances, we might give up, we might forsake the other person, mightn't we? We had an agreement, we made promises to each other but under the pressure and maybe you've betrayed me or I'm just going to forget it all. I'm going to turn around and walk the other way. God never does that. Christ was forsaken on the cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to experience that. The bonds of God's love never fail. He's forever faithful to his promises. It's like, um, it's a silly example maybe, but like the best super glue or whatever the greatest strength, strongest bonding, a good weld, God and his love, his covenant promises, his covenant nature and faithfulness can take the strain of our sin and disobedience and our unfaithfulness and all the more. Because we're sin abounds, grace superabounds, doesn't it? And we're going to see, we see that right at the beginning as well as the end of this whole narrative. Um, so just as we read, I feel like I'm flicking around a little bit here, so I hope you can just keep, it's not quite as in order as we might have had it otherwise. That's okay. Right at the beginning as well as at the end, just when we read how the Lord regretted, Then he made man on the earth, it grieved him to his heart. The Lord was sorry that he made us, in chapter 6. He saw the continual sin and evil of every thought and intention of our hearts. And then we have that great verse in verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of God. So in the middle we've got God remembered Noah. But at the beginning we have Noah found favour in the eyes of God. Now the next verse tells us, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. So he's set apart from the rest of humanity. But the key thing in this whole narrative is not how blameless and righteous Noah was. It's that God, uh, Noah found favour in the eyes of God. And God remembered Noah. The Lord's favour, verse 8, towards Noah, comes before Noah's righteousness and blamelessness in verse 9. Yes, he's contrasted with the rest of humanity. God's seen their wickedness and their corruption, their evil and sin all the time. Noah on the other hand is considered and described as a righteous man, blameless, he walked with God. There's a crescendo of goodness there, isn't it? He? He's righteous, he's blameless, he walked with God. Moses is the only other is another person in scripture who found favor with God. So, Abraham's in good company here. Righteous is a reasonably common word in the Old Testament to describe someone who's a morally good person. Blameless is pretty less common. Job is someone who's described as blameless. Abraham and Israel were told to be blameless. Enoch is the only other person who's said walked with God. So, needless to say, Noah was a rare breed. But what made him a rare breed? I would actually say God's favour. His grace is that word. Noah's righteousness and his blamelessness are a product, a fruit of God's grace, of God's favour in his life. They're not the cause of it. God doesn't favour Noah because he's righteous and blameless. God showers his grace upon Noah (laughs) And therefore by faith, we're told in Hebrews 11, that's where his righteousness comes from, by faith. Same with us, isn't it? Our righteousness, not our own, from God, Christ's righteousness to us, not because we're blameless, no, but because he became sin for us, because of God's grace so noah found favor in the eyes of god we could say noah who was also a sinner don't forget that we actually learn that after the flood don't we noah who is a sinner living among sinful humanity perpetual with its evil intent noah looks into the eyes of god and finds grace finds god's loving kindness and favor wonderful image isn't it to find grace or favour in the eyes of God is that what you find when you look to God and read his word and hear the gospel it's the first appearance of that word in the scriptures that word favour or grace it's not the first experience of it though is it God clothed Adam and Eve after their sin in the garden he made a promise that there'd be one who'd come and destroy the serpent he even protected murderous Cain when he banished him God's grace is everywhere and here Noah finds a favor in the eyes of God at the very zenith of sin as this uh, in the ESV chapter 6 for me has got this bold heading the increasing corruption on earth and so we hear about this sort of zenith of sin and darkness and evil but that's not the end of it it finishes with Noah found favor but Noah found favour in the eyes of God there is no darkness there is no amount of sin or evil so dark that the light of God cannot penetrate it and overcome it there is no such thing as a hopeless situation when God is around there is no arm No God's arm is not too short no situation, no heart too far gone that he cannot reach and pluck us out of the miry clay so Noah didn't earn this grace this favour he found it in the eyes of God and so can we his righteousness as I said as we read in Hebrews comes by faith but when you think about Noah's life he didn't just build this ark in a couple of weeks years and decades at least 50 years maybe 75 so all that time he's listening to God obeying God, believing God because God said I'm going to destroy the earth you know it's about most of our lifetime that he spent building the ark whilst sin and corruption are happening all around him he's listening to God and working away and everyone's saying what are you doing Noah it's a big boat what are you waiting for God's not going to judge us he hasn't done it yet and it's very similar today, isn't it? No fear of God, no fear of judgment in the world. And but by faith and patience we go on trusting the Lord, knowing that Christ does come, he will come, and he, when he returns he will judge the living and the dead. He's patient, isn't he, with us, not wanting anyone to perish. So let's get to chapter 9. After the flood we read, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Sound familiar? Should. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So the top and tail of that is very similar to Genesis 1.28, isn't it? That creational mandate, it should sound familiar to us. But there are some differences, there's some additions. There is dominion over all the animals, all the creatures of the earth, except now that dominion comes with a fear and a dread, rather than just a, a peaceful cohabitation and dominion. There's now fear and dread involved. Uh, We're now meat eaters, for some of us that's a really good thing, Uh, but not with the lifeblood still in it. And there is a reckoning required, God has stipulated a reckoning for those who take the life of another person. Three things that weren't in the original creational mandate. But still this strong connection and similarity, as we said earlier, a reiteration of God's mandate and covenant with creation with Adam and Eve. But what did you notice about the terms of this agreement? Of this covenant that God's making? Everything he said there, it's all one-sided, isn't it? It's all of God. It's his covenant. It's his promises. It begins with blessing. I think we said last week, when God comes to us, it begins with blessing. It contains the gift and provision of God in both the dominion and the daily need for food, for things like food. There's a level of protection from God against the threat of murder. Responding, maybe God responding to what's taken place with Cain and Abel. And then it's capped off with a repeat of this uh, mandate to be fruitful and multiply, which is a, the outworking of God's blessing. His blessing is always with a view to this fruitfulness. And yes, there are obligations for Noah and his family. They are to be fruitful and multiply, They're to obey God's word. They're not to eat the meat with the blood in it, and that threat is there. Don't take somebody else's life. Why? Because God made us all in his in his own image. But God's the one making promises here. And it's God who is establishing his covenant with Noah. Noah hasn't come begging, Lord, please, that was a really hard year on the boat and hard seventy five years building it. Please don't do that. It doesn't start that way, does it? God makes the promise with Noah and with his family and with every living creature and here's an example of what we call that one of those royal grants that we spoke of last week this is a unilateral um, one of the uniqueness of God making covenant promises to his people quite different to almost every other treaty and covenant of the ancient Near East of the day even the royal grants here is God's favour Noah who found favour in the eyes of God here's God's favour being worked out in covenant promise and action. And Noah hears that word, hears that promise of God and believes. His righteousness that comes by faith. And So as we read a little more, we see that working out even further as God himself continues to make this promise. From verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God swears to uphold creation to sustain its natural rhythms and seasons, despite the ongoing sin and evil of our hearts. And then he promises here never again to do what he's just done. Never again to judge the earth and humanity with a flood the way he did then. And it's not just for Noah and his family. It's for all humanity forever. Forever. This is what we call God's common grace. It's for all people. It's universal in that sense. Everyone benefits from this promise of God. And it's all of God. It is definitely unilateral. It's a one-sided covenant promise from God despite the ongoing presence of sin and evil in the world. This is like a new creation starting over again, starting afresh the flood representing the undoing of what was there because of sin, but it hasn't, as I said, taken the sin away. But into this new creation, this second go at creation, God swears to uphold it all. Even those who look at some of the other covenants we're going to look at and see that there's conditional aspects and unconditional aspects have to agree here. They all agree this is all of God. this is unconditional. there is no subclause is there? I promise this so long as you dot dot dot. Here's my end of the bargain. you keep yours and I'll keep nice, no, not contractual. It's all promise for all humanity, for every creature, for all creation, for all future generations. And God seals that with a sign connected to this covenant, the rainbow that he sets in the clouds. Beautiful things, aren't they, when you see a rainbow? And sometimes they're sort of light and low and sometimes they're huge and bright and depends on where the sun is and the clouds are. and And some people consider that picture of the rainbow, this image, if you think of a bow and arrow, it's a bow. And if it's a bow that's like that, then the arrow would be pointing up up to the sky. And so some see that as God setting his bow and putting himself in the firing line should he break his covenant. Which is not a bad suggestion. I think it makes some good parallels with what God does with Abraham, cutting the animals and he walks through, saying, let it be done to me. Or with the cross, he bore our sin for us, became sin for us, but I actually think that's not quite the right image here it's not a bad one but I actually think the setting of the bow here God says I will set my bow in the clouds is actually him hanging up his weapon You wouldn't hang a bow by its string he's hanging up his weapon he's putting it away symbolising that the judgement is over the judgement of the flood and it will never take place again Now, I don't mind if you disagree with me on that. But like any sign, the point's not the sign, is it? With any sign, the point is what it points to, what it signifies, not the sign itself. The sign here, the bow in the clouds, the rainbow, acts as a sign of God's promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood like the one he has here. That's what it points us to. And you can imagine in the ancient times and maybe even in some places and times today when the rain comes you know we've had the floods haven't we in the river when it really comes in the outback or in some lands where there's monsoons and the real wet season you can actually imagine some people would think this is the end of the world because in some places the waters get pretty deep and it's really difficult to live for a long long time We need not fear that because God's made a promise here. Here is God's promise to remember in those times that God is not going to finish the earth this way. He's made a promise not to do that, never to destroy the earth in that way again. But in the text, in the story, who's the forgetful one? Well, it's a trick question, no one's forgetful, at least no one's meant to be. We may forget, and the sign does remind us, doesn't it? But it's actually, we're told, when God sees the rainbow, when God himself sets it in the clouds, I will remember, verse 15, my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. There's that word again, remember. God is not suffering from some holy amnesia or divine dementia. It's that covenant word of redemptive living action, life-giving action. It's the same word as back in chapter 8, verse 1, when God remembered Noah. The sign of the rainbow is to remind us and to point us to God's promise. But as we look to that and remember that, what we're to remember is the very word of God and the action of God in this covenant because that's what he remembers that's how he has acted and continues to act in saving grace in a covenant that he has established that he has promised between himself and all flesh on the earth and it would be lovely if it finished where they all lived happily ever after wouldn't it but it's too early in scripture for that to take place too early in salvation history and sadly we learn quite quickly of the ongoing sin and evil in the heart of man Noah plants a vine, a vineyard he gets drunk lays naked in his tent, probably didn't all happen in a day or a night, takes a while for vines to grow doesn't it but in his drunken stupor he falls asleep with no clothes on one of his sons come in Ham and sees his father's nakedness, and there's a bit of contention as to what that might mean. but the fact that Ham doesn't do what his other two brothers do, and that is walking backwards and covers his father, covers their father. Ham actually goes out and sort of has a laugh with his two brothers about it all, showing no respect to his father. And there's consequences for that, which you can read of further on. But it's as though the reader is being reminded here, we are being reminded again that the flood has not fixed the problem of the human heart. But that into that problem of the human heart, God speaks and God has acted and God has come and he's made his covenant promises. And So no matter how bad things get, God's covenant promises still remain. They still stand and his faithfulness And you've only got to read another chapter or two when you get Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And you see again the corruption of the earth. It just seems to have spiralled out of control once more. And yet into that, God speaks. God acts. Yes, in judgment, but even in judgment, in his mercy and his grace. He will not renege on his covenant promises. And just to finish, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there are some New Testament references to this covenant here with Noah, particularly the one found in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. I've got the extra bits in my Bible. We read that regarding the flood and the baptism, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Goal of all covenants, really, isn't it? To bring us to God. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, Now, we won't talk today about what that might mean. There's a few different uh, interpretations. What does it mean that Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey back in the days of Noah? But, that is, a few, eight persons were brought safely through water. Noah and his family. Baptism... Believing in Christ and being baptised in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Baptism corresponds to this, that is being brought safely through water, and now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Our baptism today in Christ corresponds to Noah and his family being saved from God's wrath which is why I pointed us to the fact that Noah found favour in the eyes of God because when we believe in our baptised it's because God's grace has come upon us our salvation doesn't come through an ark and being brought through a flood safe at the other side now our salvation comes through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and with his ascension to confirm his victory and present reigning power and authority and with the sign and seal of the spirit to confirm God's promise to us. And if the flood, as we've said, Noah's deliverance, his coming through the waters safely and the promise of God is wholly unilateral, a covenant of sheer grace, What then of our salvation in Christ? It's the same. Based on the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, His Son, through His death, resurrection, and ascension. With the sign and sacrament of baptism, together with the promise of the Spirit, sealing us into God's covenant family, that we might remember His covenant faithfulness to us, and that He might remember our sin. No more. Let me pray. Father God, what grace and kindness you've shown us. We look back in these early chapters of your word and we hear these stories at Sunday school and at church and see the pictures of them. But what a reality they would have been for Noah and his wife for, his, for their sons and their wives what patient endurance you gave them in their day what favour and grace you showed them and Father you've shown us that same grace and favour in your son that we too would be brought safely through the sin and evil and corruption not only of this world but of our own hearts and that we would know your blessing that we might actually bear fruit for your kingdom that we would know you and dwell with you in sweet communion So, Father, I pray you'd help us to remember that you remember us in covenant grace and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.